When the suave Agent 007 is assigned to protect an oil heiress, he is catapulted into a passionate, adrenaline-charged adventure that pits him against one of his most deadly adversaries. Renard, a ruthless anarchist whose total impervious to pain makes him a virtually unstoppable enemy. The unrelenting suspense, breathtaking action, and sly wit never let up in this explosively entertaining thriller. Making its premiere in Los Angeles on the 8th of November 1999 before opening in the USA on the 19th and subsequently a week later in the UK on the 26th, The World Is Not Enough is the 19th James Bond film costing $135 million to make and brought in $352 million at the US at the worldwide box office. Starring Pierce Brosnan, directed by Michael Apted, the vital statistics are Conquest 3, Martini's 1, Kills 19, Bond James Bond's 2. Back in 1999, Variety said, The world is not enough, and neither is this new entry in the James Bond cycle, although not without its moments, particularly in the exciting pre-credits high-speed boat chase and some solid work by the nicely matched Pierce Brosnan and Sophie Marceau. The 19th assignment of Bond's 37-year screen career to date sees 007 undone by villainous scripting and misguided (laughs) casting and acting in a couple of key secondary roles. I don't know who they're talking about. (laughs) So, (laughs) to discuss the world is not enough, I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Darlington, Bill Koenig, and Calvin Dyson. Would you all like to introduce yourself? My name is Joseph Darlington, uh, head of section at Being James Bond, and I'm uh, excited as always to be here. Hello, I'm Bill Koenig with the Spy Command blog. And I'm Calvin Dyson, and you can find my YouTube channel under that very name uh, on on YouTube. (laughs) On the YouTubes. Find my YouTube channel on YouTube. (laughs) All right, so to kick us off, uh, we talk about the one with. What is the motif that you could hang your hat on for this film? Um, if you close your eyes, what's the one thing you think of here when you think of the world is not enough? How would you describe this film to an alien invader? The world is not enough is the one with the female villain. Hey. Getting in there quickly. I'm still amazed that this is the only one like with a female main villain, like the big bad Electra. Um, you know, I, I guess that's a spoiler for people who haven't seen the film. Uh, you know, but if you subscribe I, I, to this podcast and you haven't seen this film yet, uh, we, yeah. <laughs> but it, I, I still find safe. it. I still find it fascinating that they've never done that either before or since, because um, I think it's a it's a setup with such a. Oh, forgive it, forgive me for saying this, but electricity to it. Um, the yeah, I know it's awful. Um, mm. The idea that the Bond girl would also be the main villain of the thing—it's a really interesting idea, and I think excellently done. I'm I'm going to be gushing about this film. It's one of my very favorites. But um, yeah, the the main villain is is one of the reasons. A woman. Yeah. <laughs> um, may I go? Yes, uh, I the one with the drama. Because uh, this actually is related to what Calvin said. Um, There was more drama with this one. And they were kind of trying to shake up the formula a little bit. And I think this is... Barbara Broccoli had been involved with the series for a while. But I think that uh, this is where she begins to make her uh, Mm. feelings known and her changes known. Interesting. I I don't know how... how good this is going to be for an answer uh, but i'll go with the the one with the boat chase down the thames yeah i feel like mm. that's um if there's like a signature moment in this film it's probably that i and i can remember this is kind of um it's kind of fun doing this movie now because i feel like i'm sort of now in my kind of modern day bond fandom 
you know, where, where I was really starting to get into Bond hardcore, starting to discover other people on the internet who had similar interests, et cetera. Um, but I, I specifically remember this is like late, late nineties when I bought, there was like the, the, the day the DVD came out, I had some friends over. I just popped this on and everyone was kind of riveted to that boat chase. Everyone thought that was just, just wild, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great moment to show people a great, great score for that, that scene, et cetera. So I'll go with that. Yeah. The boat chase is something else on the big screen. Yeah. Um, and especially seeing Brosnan himself in the action a lot of the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And, and in the uh, first draft, Purvis and Wade initially, uh, envisioned the jetpack making a return, which I think was a good, that did not happen. Cause I think the, uh, I think the boat is, uh, uh, an improvement, you know, it's not repeating yourself, etc. I don't think the special effects would quite have been there either for 1999. Like I think the, the boat, you can do so much physically and for real with a jetpack, yeah. they'd probably have to do a lot of, um, you know, special effects work, green screen and all that kind of stuff. And I just, it, it just wouldn't have been at the level of sophistication it is now for them to pull it off. I don't think. Yeah. It'd be flying along a wire basically. Right. Probably. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, the Bond cocktail, which amusingly is one of the DVD special feature titles, um, mm. and the world is not enough. Um, the, the Eon themselves break it down into these categories. So we've got teaser titles, plot, women, villains, allies, Bond, action, locations, dialogue, and style. Is there a ingredient of the Bond cocktail that you feel is, um, somehow unique or particular to this film and why? And it can be a positive or a negative. Who wants to pick one of the three ingredients? Can I pick one? Location, but not the typically glamorous Bond locations. We're going into uh, former Soviet Union uh, countries, that sort of thing. I mean, we do go to Istanbul, which is, of course, part of the West, but uh, they were kind of getting away from uh, you know the Caribbean glamorous locations. Yeah, well, don't actually go to Istanbul, right? Um, right, right. <laughs> Backlock at Pinewood, but then yeah. the Splinter <laughs> Unit. But you're right. I mean, the oil fields of Azerbaijan, and um, yeah, it's not tourist destinations. This film, mm. for the most part, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I had to pick one, it would be action. I think this is probably one of the most action-packed Bond films, certainly in terms of like big action set piece kind of stuff. And I know that some people ding it a little bit for that. I think like the um the sequence at the caviar factory with the helicopters with blades coming in, like I know some people sort of react like, you know, it's sort of like, oh God, we're going to hold the plot for another five minutes while we have another action sequence because th th there's so much <laughs> in this film. I think it, it's one that really tries to keep your adrenaline up um throughout most of it but it, it all works so well for me and with the david arnold score through most of them as well like this mm. is probably the david arnold score i listen to the most um mm. i love that pipeline music yeah. as well with that suspense cue i think that that's a, a brilliant scene that's totally brought together by the music um i love the title song which is uh, as a motif throughout the film as well um but yeah no, the action is some of my very favorite to watch even just as like a little like you know five minute short or whatever I can watch that ski chase and just have a great time with it. Or the boat chase, as Joe said earlier on, um, which is such a great opening. Um, but no, I, I love all of the action sequences in this film. Uh, can I uh, just echo something real quick for Calvin? Sure. Um, mm. One thing that, 
that uh, David Arnold did for the end titles was an overture. It was a sampling of music from throughout the movie, but that was mm. not in the original soundtrack release. Now, there has been since in recent years an expanded version that includes mm. that. But I really like the end titles because it really, as, you, as you're sitting there watching the end titles, you do kind of like review the movie because of Arnold's music. Mm, no, I, I I quite agree with that as well, Bill. And uh, it's just nice, you know, seeing the James Bond will return at the start of the credits as well, and then the Bond theme comes mm. in as well. It's a really nice, um, yeah, I agree. Um, I was. It's funny you said action because that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh-huh. Um, I was probably going to put a slightly different twist on it because I, I think the action sequences in here, for the most part, are very solid. But I, I think this is probably the film where most of them really do. I, I feel like I use the phrase set piece with yeah. this one more often mm. because a lot of them, a lot of these action sequences feel like they were just sort of wedged in, like like it's time for an action scene. So we're just going to stick one in there. It doesn't really contribute to the story necessarily. doesn't move things forward. Um, so tiny bit awkward. But since you went with action, I'm going to go with james bond himself because i do think Hmm. that this is definitely where pierce brosnan shines as james bond i think he is spectacular as bond in this one and i kind of felt like you know in golden eye i was a little uh, you know less than convinced about brosnan he he definitely definitely handsome definitely has the panache of james bond but he for some reason in in golden eye he was always doing the kind of like kind of quiet mousy sort of way he would would give his lines and i wasn't sure why necessarily really here he's nailing it you know and that that scene in the banker's office of course everybody mm. goes wow wow that's that's a different pierce brosnan and i, I mm. think he's great i i think he's really he, he really is doing something with the character here and i think it really works can I point out one thing about Brosnan real quick? Uh, with Tomorrow Never Dies, he had put on some weight because he was, yeah, you know, with with muscle. You know, he was working out, and you know what? He didn't look quite right, and so by the time this movie came out, it's like, ah, eh, forget it. So he's back mm-hmm. to his like thinner look, and you know what? I think he looks great. I, you know, he, he probably shouldn't have messed around with trying to put on the the extra <laughs> muscle for the previous movie. Yeah, despite him being at his oldest, I actually think his shape and dying of the day is probably the best. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. For it. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to rewind to um, the summer of 99 and a big fucking controversy that happened um, was when the first stills of the film came out. And why is James Bond wearing glasses? This is not my James Bond. Sean Connery <laughs> would never wear glasses. Really? What the hell? Oh, that yeah. was a thing? Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if you, Bill, a joke can remember that. But it was big internet discussion talking point was bonding glasses. What the hell? If only we knew back then (laughs) that we'd have beards, kids, and death in the horizon. (laughs) Um, You know what? I don't remember the internet uh, discussion, but I do remember watching the movie the first time. And, you know, because the uh, dot opens up on him with the glasses. Yeah. And like, oh, that's different. But then it was very clear, you know, it was very clear this is not a disguise actually but you know him you know trying to change mm. his appearance intentionally 
I mean, I was fine with it. Just like Clark Kent, right? I mean, you never yeah, yeah. knew it was the same guy as Superman because he wore glasses, right? I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never even read that as so much him trying to change or, you know, or go undercover or change his appearance. I just thought that was an effective way to smuggle in a weapon. Right, right. Basically. basically. Yeah, given he was going to be disarmed, right? Mm. Right, exactly, yeah. I thought that was pretty clever. Yeah. But I but I do recall kind of people buzzing going, What what is this with, with glasses? What the what? <laughs> the bond's getting old. It's not the bond of my year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they bifocals. Yeah. Um you mentioned Bond um on this one, Joe. I've heard a lot of um contrasting opinions about Brosnan's performance in this movie. Like, yes, he was given the material he always wanted to some degree, and he wanted to make it more dramatic, but did he pull it off? I'm I'm kind of still on the fence about it myself. I I think that if you ask me personally, I think it has a lot to do with the director in this film. Yeah, I think mm. Rosnan is he he's there to work, and I think for the most part, he's he's delivering. But I I kind of also feel that the 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 way the film is kind of directed, there are moments when it does feel very. I, I, Calvin, you might have said this, so I might be stealing your poaching on your territory. Um, it does feel a little soap opera ish. There's mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, like just shot reverse shot. The camera's always sort of eye level. Um, there's not a lot really happening with regard to direction. So mm -hmm. it, 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 some of it does kind of come off a little stilted. I think, um, not so much just for Brosnan, I think for everybody. Yeah. Um, so well, actually, Joe, I think that that links back to kind of what you were saying about the action sequences earlier on about, you know, the stop and start yeah. nature. I think you feel it when the, you you know, it, it clicks into the second unit shot right. stuff. Like yeah. There, there yeah. Is, yeah. It's the only Bond film where I feel like there is that disconnect. And I say this as a fan of the film, but I, yeah, I, I think that some of the Michael Apted stuff and he, he did, you know, film on Coronation Street and a lot of British TV stuff. So it certainly is wheelhouse, that kind of mm. soapy stuff. Right, and there's, right, you know, yeah. there's a few slaps in here as well. There is something about the drama <laughs> that just feels very pitched at that level just wait for the doof, 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 yeah. Doof, doof, doof. yeah extend this thing <laughs> get out of my pipeline <laughs> control center i don't know right. this, this is the one with the most slaps across the face for sure yes. <laughs> um also apted also hired his wife dana stevens to rewrite purvis and wade yeah she did mm. the middle drafts which and went then, way too far into the female characters, and then right. they throw it back again. Right? right. So then they brought Bruce Fairstein to wind it back yeah. for for the final draft, um, because this was the first time, as only two times in my life, that I had the chance to read a James Bond script before seeing the James Bond movie. And the, mm. as it turned out, the version I saw was the, was the Dana Stevens version, mm. um, because. The Purvis and Wade first draft starts off in Cuba, and yes. then it was Dana Stevens who introduced the whole Swiss banker thing, except in her version, it was in Geneva. Oh, a Swiss banker in Geneva. Well, that's not unusual. And then hmm. it was uh, Fairstein who had the Swiss banker in Spain with the, the big museum, whatever Guggenheim. it was, unusual. Yeah, yeah Guggenheim uh, Museum architecture. So, um, yeah, so it was weird. So I... I had a chance to read the script, but it wasn't the final script, so I was still had some surprises waiting for me when I actually saw the movie. Yeah. Oh, bless Pevis away trying to get Cuba in it again, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get Cuba in it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right, so let's move on to underappreciated elements. Um, what thing, big or very, very small, would you like to point out to somebody so the next time they watch The World Is Not Enough, they can look out for it? Calvin, you've got to have a bunch of these. Oh. <laughs> I do. Okay, I'm going to go with my big one. Uh, Christmas Jones, Denise Richards. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I- I'm going there. Um, I've been on such a journey with her. Like this was the f- this wasn't the first Bond film that I saw in the cinema, but this was the like the newest Bond film out at a time that, when I remember becoming a Bond fan. So I didn't see this one at the cinema, but it was the new one for a, a, you know a big chunk of when I was in those formative years becoming a Bond fan. So I do have a lot of fondness for so much of it but christmas jones in particular i had a friend at school he was like 10 years old or whatever he had a you know a big poster of denise richards on his wall like she she was very much kind of like we all loved her at that age um and then certainly i got older and then you sort of start being a little bit influenced by some of the you know uh, well-founded criticism perhaps of uh the performance and the character and then you know uh, in these last few years though i feel like i've been on a real curve of just like you know what actually i love that she's in this and i wouldn't want to change it for the yeah. world now it's such a a part of it just the identity of the film and you know maybe it is just the camp value that she brings because she isn't the best of actresses i mean and obviously she's overshadowed by sophie marceau who is really phenomenal in this film i think um but you know comparing her to you know bond girls of the 60s and the actresses then it's like you know i don't think she's that much kind of different but no. uh, you know, similar to terry hatcher in tomorrow never dies i i think um it's an mgm it, casting choice well th- there you go and it, it it does kind of smack of like we need to appeal to american audiences so find someone who's hot and popular in america and we'll put them in whereas i think <laughs> it, it you know you you react differently if it's a an right. unknown actress from norway or something yeah. that no it's one from, sort of in english speaking has heard of the mgm board at the time reminds me of that meme it's like hey fellow kids <laughs> yeah it's like they went whoever was on the front cover of um fhm yeah fhm that's it yeah i was like what's a lads mag they don't really exist anymore yeah yeah. but um i i love her in this film i have a blast um yeah i i don't think you know obviously not to be taken seriously but certainly on like a camp level i think she's fairly brilliant i i get a lot of enjoyment out of her yeah um the character was originally an insurance investigator, hmm. which I think would have nobody would have blinked an eye about that. But yeah. Nuclear physicist, uh, yeah, a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I've been on this journey too, Calvin, and um, you know I was like high on it, and then I was low on it, and then well, we've talked about this on an episode of Defend the Indefensible when I mm. cracked open her autobiography, mm, which I read said, because of you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, <laughs> and she explains how miserable it was um, mm. being on this film because wow. there was nobody around um, to hang out with because they all went home to their families and stuff. Um, so she was on her own in a new country with no support and the director wasn't really a big help. Um, I recently got a chance to ask her about that. And if, oh. if it comes back in time, I'm going to edit it in here. So if you hear oh. wibble wobble music, it did. If you don't, then future emergency <laughs> podcast. Um, we'll see. We'll see. But I think she's um, unfairly slated, and especially when you compare it to some of the casting in the past. Mm. Um, at least she had a film career before this, whereas <laughs> a lot of the others didn't and subsequently didn't have either. So um, I think mm. history would be kinder to her. Mm. Than the immediate, mm. than the variety review. Mm. Mm. I'll, I have one bit. 
um, as I mentioned, Bruce Fairstein was brought in to do the final drafts. And he rather famously had started Tomorrow Never Dies and other writers came in. Then he got brought in at the end. He managed to rework some of his first draft Tomorrow Never Dies stuff into this film. For example, in the casino scene, Bond is dealing with a guy and he he like kicks him. Guy loses his balance. Bond puts a knife down in his tie. So now the guy is like strangling on his tie. That was from the first draft of Tomorrow Never Dies. So he's mm. like, oh, okay, okay, I'm going to get my stuff in this, in this draft. <laughs> and <laughs> that probably explains originally when the novelization came out, it said based on the, uh, by Raymond Benson, based on the screenplay by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. Oh, these are the guys who are going to write the movie. Well, Fairstein filed a grievance with the Writers Guild. And so relatively at the last minute, he got a screen credit along with yeah. Purvis and Wade. So there you go. Hmm. That's a, that's an interesting one too. Cause I, I forgot that this was the first outing for Purvis and Wade. And I remember leading up to the film hearing about basically just reading articles and the big hype about these two was that they were bond fans, right? You know, they, these guys are fans and they really understand. So I was like, All right, well, I, I was like really on board and really, really excited about, about them. Um, I'm kind of shocked nobody said this already. And I was sitting here in a cold sweat. I'm like, oh, somebody's going to steal this. and I'm, I'm going I'm to come up short. Um, for me, it's the music. It's the score. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you, you know, there were two big elements, you know, as we were sort of leaving the Dalton era, you know, there were there was a lot of the old guard, you know, was yeah. going away and there's a lot of new guard coming in the two big ones that I think we got really lucky with. Uh, one would be Daniel Kleinman coming in, taking over from Morris Bender, because I think Kleinman does a fantastic job with the titles. The other one, of course, would be David Arnold, and I think mm. he was probably the best gift we could have gotten as far as you know, getting somebody who was the in-house composer, at least for a little while, because I, I, mean, I think he really is. There are so many things in in all of his films that he scored i think he does a spectacular job with yeah and you know one of the things that always amazes me about well maybe i'll say two things one is i love that he is not in any way allergic to the bond theme like mm. he he will use that bond theme as if it's just the theme of the film you know like uh, as if it's as, as if he had just kind of came up with it yesterday and he's going to use it um he's not afraid to use it and i just love that uh the other thing is I love how he can read the scene and can score accordingly. Like, for example, the the boat chase theme is to me is like a quintessential bit of Bond score. You know, like if, if, if you're going to just if somebody says, I've, I've never heard Bond music before, what, what is it like? Is it, is it I, I would just play them this and say, oh, this is probably one of the best pieces of, of, of Bond music. It, like just to stand on its own like it is just it's the bond theme it's powerful etc but the other example from this one for me is the uh the caviar factory i i feel like that mm. scene is kind of played a little tongue-in-cheek like i i feel like when i watch that scene i'm 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 feeling very claustrophobic like it's very i don't know why exactly but it feels very much like this was a, a close set you know, this is not outdoors. This is indoors. Um, and it's kind of just 
we're running around in this kind of small space. Uh, Bond's doing things that, like he grabs the crowbar, does the the swing across, you know, slides down the the wire, and I feel like the the score for this it sort of understands that and communicates to the audience. Yeah, that one over there was powerful. It was whatever. This one's more fun. You know, it's fun. It, it's there's a little theme of technology, so we let ourselves do a little more techno here than we would in some of the other scenes. He really does have a great versatility. He's very versatile. And yeah, like I said, he just sort of reads these scenes and knows how to how to communicate to the audience how mm. to feel about it. Mm. Take a drink well, of water and- after that long. <laughs> well, I was about to say, and, and on top of all that, he got to co-write his own Bond song. And he gets to do mm. with Don Black, one of the classic lyricists of the Bond series. Yes. Mm. So, you know, good for, you know, good for uh, David. Hmm. Are we slipping into trivia now? I think. Um, would you like to share a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting? Hmm. I'll, I'll I'll do one. Um, there is the sequence where uh, Bond and Christmas Jones are in the pipeline in that contraption, where and Bond fakes the explosion, and a lot of that was done with a miniature, mm-hmm. which I didn't know watching the film, but I saw. It was a special on cable television that showed them how, that showed how they pulled off that stunt. Yeah. So they they call it a foreground miniature where you you know the 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 camera can't tell the difference between what's in the foreground and what's in the background. So it all looks like one thing, but because it's um, a static shot, right? So that again is an example of a of, of a practical effect. I mean, there is some CGI in the film. Uh, on the DVD, they showed you an example of how um, in the caviar factory scene where Bond is being chased by that saw and, you know, Brosnan's running. And in real life, you know, he was, you know, in front of a green screen or whatever. But uh, but that uh, thing with the foreground miniature, that was, you know, that was real. And it was practical. Mm. It, it just fools you. Yeah. 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 Just seen as you mentioned the the buzzsaws there, Bill, this is my bit of trivia that um, the buzz, the helicopters with the buzzsaws underneath was an idea originally conceived for Goldeneye for a sequence that was deleted mm. there. And you can see um, on the Blu-ray and the Ultimate Edition featurettes, there are some, I think it's Chris Corbold, um, who's sort of like talking about how they're going to be achieving those effects in the behind the scenes stuff, obviously, before that scene was um, cut from Goldeneye. But it's kind of interesting looking at that, and he's got these little cardboard things, sort of mock-ups, right. and then how they kind of recycled the idea a little bit later on. Well, um, well just, to, just to piggyback on what you just said, it at that 1994 official James Bond convention in Los Angeles, one of the last things of the day was this video, oh, here's what's going to be in GoldenEye. And they showed you that saw underneath the helicopter. Oh, you can watch uh. this. And then obviously it wasn't in the movie. It also said there'd be the new Aston Martin. Obviously that wasn't in the movie either because things were still in flux at the time of that convention. But uh, yeah, just, Hmm. just, just adding on to what you just said. Oh no, that's really interesting. Yeah. The fact that they would announce it, you know, they must've been fairly certain it was going to be in there at some point. Well, this would have been roughly around Halloween of 94, which they would have started filming the movie in January mm. of 95. So it was pretty close. And then mm. that sequence was going to be in a town square, right? If the I remember video correctly. I saw didn't specify mm. that, mm. but you, you maybe you're probably right. Which, mm. you know, I don't know how they work that in. But to go back to the Purvis and Wade thing about this as their first film, I mean, 
they were basically told, here are all the action sequence we've predetermined. Hmm. Here's the story plot we want you to use. Now go write the script. I mean, that's <laughs> pretty limiting. And um, I think they did a great job considering. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I mean, I, you know, it's like with Hitchcock and North by Northwest. Yeah, he was yeah. kind of like, you know, I want a climax with a man right. inside Lincoln's nose on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> okay, right, well, yep. I want a crop dust scene. Okay, right, yep. Do that. Well, and I was about to say, I have read in recent years uh, the Purvis and White original draft for this movie, and it is a lot closer to the final film than, say, yeah. uh, uh, Bearstein's first draft for Tomorrow Never Dies yeah. Yeah. and other first drafts. So they, they must have saw I, I th- something they I think they because liked. of those limitations. Yeah. That they had to fit it within the scaffolding that's already been erected. So mm-hmm. it wasn't going to deviate too much. It, it does feel like uh, like there's a, probably a lot of elements in this film that were just sort of like uh, leftovers that they hadn't used in the other films yet. So it, I think that contributes to the to the idea that a lot of it feels a little hodgepodge. You know, a lot of these action sequences, again, feel a little out of place. So <clears throat> this film was a little bit darker originally. Um, a few things. There was a scene with Bond and M stepping over body bags outside the pipeline factory, which was actually in Milton Keynes. <laughs> A Motorola. Yeah. A few shots survive of that sequence, where they're counting the bodies from the attack. Mm. Um, and then in one of the drafts, um, it ends with this line: um, "His hand comes off the rudder as they sink from view, past a host of boats converging on the sinking submarine, rising high, sweeping past the angular minaret where Electra lies dead." Oof. That was the end of the film. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the very last shot. Yeah. Very last shot. Oof. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing about looking back at the five different versions of the script, Bond never got the last line ah. until the shooting script was finalized. In every single previous version, it's Christmas Jones gets the last line. She makes fun of herself. Hmm. So she has lines like, you know, James, I think Christmas is coming early this year. That was one of her lines. There's <laughs> <laughs> a couple of versions of that um, in the scripts. Um, I just remembered something else about one of the drafts. So apparently in one of the drafts, Bond is actually handling the plutonium. Mm. And so like one of the beta readers got, you know, got in touch with Fairstein. Bruce, you've got to change this now. If he handles it, he's dead. And well, I'm not sure I can. Bruce, you have to do this. So apparently the message got through. And so he's not shown handling plutonium in the final film. But apparently that did get a fair ways into production. Though. Yeah. In, in, wow. in, the, in that timeline, he could never have kids. So, right. Yeah, right. In fact, you, you, you don't live two weeks past the end of the movie. But. Yeah. Um, and in the other drafts, Bond and Jones hook up earlier in the film in a hotel room. And that's why she references um, coming early and all those kind of Christmas jokes. Um, hmm. So it's only at the last minute that they come up with a way of Bond to have the last line. Hmm. Um, I kind of feel like if they let her have it, she would have taken the heat for it too. Because they've. Yeah, Bond, we we wouldn't be looking at James Bond so cringy if if they let her have that line, right? <laughs> right. Um, I I remembered what my was my trivia was. I don't know how accurate my information is, but the way I understood this was the BMW Z8, right? That was the Bond car in this film. 
didn't actually run yet. They didn't nope. even have a car that actually ran. So all of the shots of the Z8 in in motion was either done by just pulling the car along on on cables, or I think they did a, an actual miniature shot of of a. They did of a, well. There's a miniature. Right? There's a miniature shot when Bond drives to meet Electra in Azerbaijan. Yeah. That's all model work. It's amazing model work because it is. You know never and, and Joe, that is actually kind of standard operating procedure in movie and television productions because there's a, a lot of times a production car. It's intended to promote a production car, and the production car is not ready. Mm. So one other thing that will sometimes be done is you have a prototype. But the prototype, it's not street legal. Well, uh, Casino Royale, uh, the Mondeo, that wasn't street legal. Right. Um, you know, so you have something like that where it's like, you know, it's not street legal. It's not, you know, the materials aren't the materials that are going to be in the production car. It's probably a completely different car chassis underneath. Right? Yeah, mm. exactly. So, I mean, there's, there's a TV show from the 60s into the 70s where in the end titles, the, the lead characters drive in a Ford car. And it's like in some of those end titles, it's not a street legal car. And he had to like be really, really careful <laughs> when he's driving it because they're just doing it for the credits. And wow. yeah, so yeah, that hap that that happens more often than you might realize. Yeah, I believe it. I I I think the model work you mentioned before, James, yeah, you're absolutely right. I completely agree. That's very, very convincing. I don't think anybody would would know right. unless mm -hmm. they're looking for it. Yeah. And I, I don't know whether it was the car's not going to work yet, or let's wrong foot the audience and not have a car chase by destroying the car, which came first. Hmm. Right, right. <laughs> because I remember in the special features, they talk about like, well, we're not going to do a car chase in this one because we just had a big boat chase. So we're just going to wrong foot the audience and destroy it hmm. really early. Um, but I don't know how much of that was tied to the fact that they didn't have a working car to work with anyway. Um, mm, yeah. And how do you have a car chase on a bunch of peers in a caveat factory anyway? But yeah. <laughs> 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 kind of limiting and who knew years later we'd have fake aston martin db5s with real bmws um mm. so we kind of went full <laughs> circle didn't we <laughs> all righty uh final verdicts there are no bad bod films but there are bond films we watch more than other bond films so is the world is not enough in your top tier middle tier or lower tier joe do you want to head this one off first uh, i'm gonna pick on you yeah Okay. <laughs> um, I would say it's it's towards my upper tier. I'd say, um, you know, what do they call it? The, the bottom of the top tier kind of thing. Um, it's a solid, solid Bond film. Pro it's probably my favorite of the Brosnans. And, you know, th there's um, I, I heard one reviewer talking about this film and he basically said, this movie is so, so close to being a great Bond film. Mm. And I kind of feel like that's very true. I, I, it's, it, there's so many things in here that work really, really, really well for me. And there's some other elements that just sort of feel kind of clunky, not quite there. Uh, you know, it's hard to kind of like, like Brosnan's very good in this. I think, there are other there are some times when I think maybe he's even a little too good because he seems very, very motivated to be doing what he's doing. And and I'm not even understanding why sometimes. Um, 
there's a shot when he's in the trunk when Davidoff opens the trunk and Bond says surprise and shoots him. And I remember thinking like I, that guy really didn't do anything yet. Like I'm not like I'm not angry at that guy yet. Why are you shooting him? Like it seemed a little early for that. And there was and the, and I noticed there's a lot of times in this film, and I'm sure this was probably a Brosnan request. Like he he wanted to be more a little more hardcore, a little more actiony. He's he's always point. He's got he's got his gun in people's faces all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like he like he's got his gun in 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 um Zukovsky's face. And like Zukovsky's saying, like, well, can't we just have a conversation? And I'm sort of sitting there in the audience thinking, Yeah, can't you just like like <laughs> what did he do? Like calm down. <laughs> <laughs> um so um but yeah, I mean but the whole thing is pretty, pretty good. You know, I, I do think the locations it, it does suffer from having some of the most ugly locations. Um, you know, a few nice Including ones. Milton Keynes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just it's not real pretty. So, um, yeah, but it, I mean, it's it's solid stuff. So I, but and I, it's one I'm happy to watch. So yeah, I, like middle upper tier. Go for Bill. Um, I'll go with the upper middle tier as well. You know, B B plus. Um, I think they were still trying to feel their way with a more dramatic. Uh, direction so i think they were kind of um they hadn't quite figured it out but uh but it was definitely a big change i mean especially when Electra gets killed you know mm. she's the main villain and she gets killed all in the same movie it's like whoa that was different um i do remember i remember it got a devastating review by the wall street journal like the yeah. the critic just and he won a pulitzer prize for his movie review so he's not a hack but he really did not like it. I was, I was a little, t- I was taken back. Like, really? You thought it was that bad? What, what's going on? But uh, yeah, upper middle tier for me. And it's top tier for me. Um, hey. it, yay. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Goldeneye is still my favorite Brosnan one, but this is a, a close second. I absolutely adore it. And I have no doubt that a big part of that is nostalgia and becoming a Bond fan around about the time that this was the new one and kind of setting the uh, the stage, I guess, for the kinds of media tie-ins and the games as well that came out around this time um, that were obviously very much influenced by it. Uh, I, I I think it's wonderful. It's such a fun... I love all of the action scenes. I think Brosnan's great in it. I love the villain. Um, it, it, it's almost a perfect package for me as far as uh, Bond films go. So it's, uh, yeah, very top tier, probably in my top five Bond films mm. overall. You know, it's something we should mention. This was, of course, Desmond Llewellyn's uh, finale. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. It was not necessarily planned because he died in, a, in an auto accident after the movie was released. But he had a very nice farewell scene. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I think originally they wanted to have him at the very end, but no, I, I think the way they did it in the movie, it was it was just fine. It was it was good. Mm. T point, Calvin, about nostalgia. Um, Ninety nine. I think we're it was a special time for the Bond series post sixties because I think that was the peak because we had the games coming out, we had merch you could buy at your local newsagent um, mm-hmm. with Bond, mm-hmm. and we had all the magazine coverage and everything else going on, and the DVD series being released. I mean, it was like, yeah, <clears throat> there was a lot of Bond in the world in 99, um, mm. which I don't was, think we've seen since. 
I, mm-hmm. I totally agree. I, I definitely agree that this was a great time to be a Bond fan. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of all the all the tie-ins. The video games would come out in conjunction. We had Raymond Benson novels coming out yeah. pretty regularly at this at this point too. Yeah. And yeah, and I remember that first. The, 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 I guess not technically not the first, but there was the um, the, the round of DVDs that came out with all the extras. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and all the I remember all the. Um, I don't know what you call them exactly, but like the menus, the interactive menus, they were all unique to each DVD at that point. Oh yeah. It was, yeah, that was, it was a really nice time to, to, to be a Bond fan. And, and I would also agree just one, just one element you just said, I think this was probably the peak influence of the Benson continuation novels. Yeah. You'd been doing them for a while. Um, because remember he's not only doing the original novels, he's doing the novelizations of the film. So yeah, I mean, you know, this was kind of like his peak time as a Bond author. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. All right. If you're listening to this as this episode came out, uh, World's Not Enough is back on the big screen in the UK this week. Um, so go see it and watch for that model BMW Z8, which, which <laughs> you won't unsee again. Um, but the thing I noticed when we did our watch along was um, as we're all more conscious of healthcare and germs, just just count how many times Brosnan touches his face in this film. <laughs> Um, it'll drive you fucking nuts um, when you see it (laughs) and with that we will be back next week for the epic episode of Dino the Day and ask the question are we having a renaissance of that movie so be sure to join us for that one see you next week see you thanks again